All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're back for another Boca Podcast episode. Uh, it happens to be a beautiful day here in Chattanooga, Tennessee on a Wednesday. Uh, I'm a little bit jealous of my guest today, Adam Taylor, who is actually calling in from Oahu. Is that right? That is correct. And it is a beautiful day here as well. And I would venture probably a little bit warmer than where I'm at. What's it like? Uh, probably 75 to 80 today. Oh, man. I, I actually had the chance to visit Oahu. It's been two or three years ago or so with my kids. And we spent some time out there and just had a blast. And for multiple reasons, it's a beautiful lo- locale, of course. I also grew up in Japan, and there's such a large percentage of Japanese people that live there. Uh, it felt like being in kind of the best of both worlds, the Japanese food and, and the Japanese people and getting to have conversation in Japanese, but then also, of course, still being in America and then the beautiful scenery. It was just an amazing experience. Yeah, it definitely feels like uh, the closest you can get to another country pretty much with still being in a U.S. territory. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just, again, I'm a little bit jealous. And you actually told me you just moved there back in November. So congrats to you on on the move. What was kind of the, the impetus for that? Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, it's It's definitely very fresh to us. It's very new and exciting. So my wife and I are big believers in, you know, setting goals and kind of manifesting and creating the type of life that you want to live. And, you know, we had our vision board, we had our list of goals. And, you know, a lot of these things were very lifestyle oriented. You know, we wanted to be able to snorkel and free dive in warm tropical waters on a regular basis. And we wanted to be able to hike through jungles to waterfalls and, you know, live a very outdoor active lifestyle. And uh, essentially, at, at a certain point, we were like, okay, well, Long Beach, California is great, but it doesn't offer almost any of these things, you know, uh, it, it has a beach, but it's not a warm tropical beach. And, you know, it has hikes, but they're kind of like dry and deserty hikes. And so, you know, when we were looking at our lifestyles, like, okay, well, are we going to wait until we retire to try to go chase this dream and lifestyle? Or mm. are we going to do something about it now? Yep. Uh, so we decided let's do it now. Well, and I, I actually noticed on your site, you mentioned something about that, that you'd like to travel and, you know, what's the point in waiting until you retire to go do the thing or go see the place that you want to? Mm-hmm. Life could be super short. You, know, you never know. Why not live now? Um, so, I, I, you know, the fact that you've taken that from being kind of a cliche that you see people post on Instagram to actually doing it, uh, I have a lot of respect for that. And also the intentionality behind what enabled you to do that, to say so specifically, we want to be able to snorkel, for example, or hike in the jungle or to actually exist in this particular space. This is what we're looking for and then make it happen. How long, if you don't mind me asking, how long did it take from the the point where you wrote those things down or said those things out loud and then made that move in November? Yeah, good question. So I have to tell a little bit backstory. I was going to keep it brief, but since you kept asking, I will keep telling a story. <laughs> Go so, to town. Um, we, we were on a trip, a road trip um, up to, from, Cali- from Southern California, kind of to NorCal to go to uh, Yosemite National Park. Okay. And on this drive, uh, we started asking each other, like, okay, what do we really want out of life and why do we want it? I had heard on a podcast somebody talking about uh, what they call the seven layers of why, Hmm. where you basically ask yourself why seven times to get to the root of the true answer. So, Ah. okay, what do you want out of life? Well, I want to be free and flexible. Like, okay, why? And you dig a little bit deeper and you dig a little bit deeper and it really helps you kind of peel back the layers of the onion. Side note, it'd probably be a little more beneficial if you had like a professional kind of guiding you along through this, but we try to do it ourselves. That's cool. Um, And through this process, we, we decided that, you know, what we wanted out of life was, 
you know, this certain lifestyle and a big um, kind of feeling that we had was we want every day of our life to feel like those best days of our vacations when we went to Bali and when mm. we went to Thailand. Mm-hmm. And how can we achieve that feeling on a daily basis? Wow. Uh, and so we started kind of like looking at houses in Hawaii and it was like, man, we're like, are we just going to buy a house before we ever go there? Like, that's really crazy. <laughs> and then we were like, well, we really love Bali and, you know, it's so cheap there. Like we could just sell our condo and go live there for Kings and, you know, just kind of like do a mini retirement and see what happens and blah, blah, blah. And we had all these like grandiose ideas, but they were super scary and overwhelming. Hmm. And eventually we, we said, well, what if we just went to Bali for a year? And then all of a sudden it was like, well, that's not so scary and overwhelming. Uh, we had traveled actually around the world for like four months when we got married. Uh, and so we knew what it was like to kind of put our life on pause for a couple of months. And so a year all of a sudden didn't seem so far fetched. And uh, so we, we kept pondering on that. And then eventually we decided, you know, let, let's, let's make this happen. Let's kind of uh, see what happens if we go for a year and live off of savings um, side note, you're not allowed to work in Bali legally and make money there. So any work we would do would have to be online. So okay. the thought was, if we go to Bali for a year and live off of savings and don't have the stress or pressure of, you know, we have to make money this month, how creative can we get as, as creative, uh, you know, driven entrepreneurial people that enjoy helping others? How creative can we get in coming up with other revenue streams? So our plan was to move to Bali. So uh, end of 2019, we went there for five weeks. We explored we found the house to rent we put our first uh, month of lease down we came home to uh, california in january 2020 booked a one-way flight for march 29th 2020 dun 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 and then covid hit (laughs) yeah so march 19th california went into lockdown we had already had our bags packed we had already sold half of our belongings wow our was up for sale Our, our condo was up for lease and here we are just like well what the hell do we do now yeah so obviously we couldn't go at that point. Our dreams were crushed. We had put so much time and energy and resources and money into making this move a reality. Wow. And, you know, mentally we were already there. We were 10 days away. Like mentally we were in Bali already. Yeah. Uh, and so we lived all of 2021 just kind of feeling like we had our life on pause of like, okay, when can we take that step? Like we had already put our dream plan into action. Like when can we actually make it happen? Um, Bali continued to keep their borders closed and... On September 30th, we were just sitting around in the evening, kind of winding down from the day. And we said, you know what? Let's just move to Hawaii. Um, we <laughs> briefly talked about like taking a vacation. Yeah. And every time we looked at, you know, vacation, it was like, well, all this like travel restrictions and COVID stuff and quarantine and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, well, if we take a vacation, we're going to spend several thousand dollars uh, and we know what we want. Like, why not just go do it? Yeah. And so literally September 30th, we're like, you know what? Let's just move. And a month and a half later, November 13th, we were here on the island with six suitcases, and that was it. That is brilliant. I, I, I laughed when you said we were just talking on September 30th, and we said, Let, let's move. So matter-of-factly, like that's just the thing that people normally do. I love that, though. I love that mentality and that approach to life. And again, yeah. I have so much respect for the fact that you're living it. Um, you know, it, it would sound like a dream to others, but they'll kind of maintain that categorically in their mind as a dream, as opposed to looking at it as a possibility and just kind of taking the next steps to make it happen. Uh, yeah. So and, yeah, you know, massive that, that props vision board, Thank you. Thank you. That vision board was pretty powerful. You know, we had like put it up and, and I had done one years ago and didn't really get much out of it. And then finally we did another one and it kind of seemed a little hokey and silly for a little bit. 
but it was like right by our bed. And like every night, every morning I would see it. And there was these pictures and words on there. And eventually it was just like, man, like, what are we waiting for? Like, this is what we want. Like, why are we going to keep putting this off? Like, why am I going to keep looking at these words instead of making these words happen? Mm. And so then it was just a matter of how can we make it happen now? And, you know, Hawaii is a, a bit more expensive than where we lived, even though we lived in, you know, the LA area and Bali was super cheap. And that was kind of why we decided on Bali first is because it was like, okay, well, we can make these dreams happen now. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess Hawaii just still seemed, you know, too far fetched for whatever reason. Uh, and the reason why we were able to go from, you know, September 30th to November 13th and being here was that we'd already put in the work. We, we'd already made up our mind of what we wanted. We were already so close to moving to Bali. Uh, you know, we, we had already gone through the motion of purging and donating and packing and, you know, kind of preparing our lives to, to uproot. Uh, and so we were able to kind of fast track it a little bit. Well, massive respect, man. And I'm stoked for you guys. And, and I hope that it just plays out beautifully. Um, for you all. And, and for anybody who is curious, hasn't actually seen Adam's Instagram yet, kind of get a feel for that life that is starting or just started within the last couple of months, uh, you can go to his Instagram account and it's just simply Adam Taylor Photos. And of course, we'll link to it in the show notes at bocapodcast.com. Uh, we have a lot to talk about, Adam, and, and I'm excited for an introduction just like that. But I want to, at the very least, introduce our listeners to you as a photographer, you happen to be a photographer as well, in addition to an example, wonderful example of, of living out your dreams. But um, we talk about brand position here a lot at the podcast, and I'm going to kind of break the fourth wall here, if you will, and, and jump right in with your brand position, which I actually happen to find on your, the about page of your website. And the reason I bring this up, I wrote it down was because it's just, it's a wonderful example of a brand position. Uh, for those of you listening in, it's very simple. I help interior designers, architects, builders, and home product companies build their brand and tell their story through high-end photography. Can you break that down for us a little bit, Adam? How did you come up with, I mean, it, it really just, it's beautifully stated. It's simple to the point, talks about the value that you're going to add to their business if they hire you. But how did you come up with that? Yeah, thanks. Um, and I was, I was worried that you were going to give me grief for it because I listened to one of your recent episodes where um, I, I can't remember her name, but the, the lady was, you know, basically said uh, it was in fewer words and you were giving her such props for breaking it down so simply. So, <laughs> uh, so thanks for giving me props too. Absolutely. Um, well, I mean, first of all, most photographers don't have a clear brand position. Uh, so that's number one. So you're already ahead of the game. And, okay. and despite the fact that the sentence is a little bit longer, it, it doesn't feel like you're adding any unnecessary words. You talk about your target market, yeah. uh, you talk about the service that you offer, and then you talk about the value that you're going to offer them via that service. And so, yeah. I mean, you've done a wonderful job of encompassing everything you need to in a brand position, but yeah, how, did, how did you come up with it? So uh, I kind of started out, well, after my photography career shifted from BMX bike riding to fitness and then into shooting houses and spaces. Uh, I was shooting for realtors. I didn't love that business model and style of shooting very much and kind of made the, the transition to working with interior designers and architects and, and product companies. And the big switch there was actually I got on retainer with a brick and tile manufacturer. Uh, and so I was shooting for them. And over the couple of years that I was working with them, you know, shooting houses and other commercial spaces that featured their tiles and bricks that were, you know, custom made and installed in different places. I realized just how valuable the images were to helping build their brand and tell their story. And they were a family owned company and everything is handmade in Southern California and everything is made to order and has a lot of texture and variation to it. So 
telling their story through the images was really important. Um, and again, I just saw how valuable those images were so much so that, you know, I went into a lot of people's houses and talked to their end customers, you know, being the homeowners that actually chose those products to go in their spaces. And uh, there's one time in particular, I remember talking to this guy and he's like, oh yeah, we've been a fan of, of this company for a long time. I've used them in several different projects and uh, like, man, they've gotten a lot bigger recently, haven't they? And that comment right there was exactly what you wanted to hear in my position or in the marketing person position in that company. Mm. Because what it told me was my images being on their social media, being in their print collateral brochures and lookbooks just made that company look much bigger to their end user. Um, and that to me was like, oh my gosh, you know, like what I'm doing here really, really matters. Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, working with interior designers, uh, you know, going back to the brand position kind of statement, uh, you know, I wanted to outline exactly who I work with and the people that I want to work with and for, uh, which is interior designers, um, custom home builders and uh, architects, and then the home product companies. And that's a unique one again, because I worked with the brick and tile company hmm. and by working with them, as opposed to just the builders and architects and designers, um, it gave me a much different way of looking at images. Uh, you know, now I'm looking at them through the eyes of a marketer and how can we use these in our um, print collateral, in our brochures, in our price list. Um, so it was like a different end usage and it gave me a very unique perspective of how to look at photographing these spaces. Uh, and so I wanted to include that in there um, also because I license a lot of my photos, which obviously we'll talk about later to these types of companies after shooting them for the designers and architects. Uh, and so I wanted to, you know, clearly outline the people that I was targeting. And then again, like telling, telling their story and building their brand. Um, I got that from working with the tile company. And then I specifically wanted to tell them building your brand and telling your story is going to help you sell more products. It's going to help you sell your service better and that's yep. going to make you more money. Yep. Uh, and then the last line is through my high-end photography um, you know, I wanted to let them know, obviously I take pictures because a lot of times I go to websites and it's like, it kind of tells me all the first part, but then it doesn't tell me exactly what they do at the end. And I'm like left mm. a little bit confused of like, what kind of company are you? Like what website am I even looking at? And I specifically use the word high end because, um, you know, I want to distinguish myself and let them know that, you know, I'm not for the everyday houses. I'm not for, you know, if you're just looking for somebody to go in there and quick and dirty, you know, running gun style, like that's not what I do. And so I wanted that to be very clear right from the beginning. Well, again, I, I can't say enough about how well that sentence is put together. And for anybody listening in, if you, first of all, if you don't have a clear and distinct brand position statement for your business and on your website, make sure that you take some time to think about this. And we've done a number of brand position consultations uh, for those of you listening. And we'll actually link to one or two in the show notes. Uh, at bocapodcast.com. You can check that out, get a better feel for what a brand position is and how to go about putting one together. But this is a wonderful example. By the way, Adam, I'm curious because it is so well put together and it communicates what it is that you do so well. Have you ever thought about putting it on the homepage of your site? I guess I haven't now that you asked. Um, it makes me want to go look at my homepage. You know, I, I use a, a WordPress template for my website. Yeah. Um, and I guess there just wasn't text on the homepage initially. The only reason I ask is, again, because it's so well communicated. I can imagine if somebody lands on the homepage of your site and they read that, mm -hmm. it, it does a wonderful job of drawing them in if, if they fit mm -hmm. that description. And if not, then it's, it acts as a filter. I think it's, a, it's just so well done. So I, again, major props to you for that. But um, I want to keep moving too. And, and we have a question about customer experience. And I'm sure that your experience as a, 
in this case, an interior photographer is maybe a little bit different, the type of interactions that you have than, say, maybe a wedding photographer. But is there a particular idea or principle that has enabled you to provide a great customer experience for your clients? The only thing I can say to that is have open and honest communication from the beginning. You know, just be human, be relatable. Hmm. Um, I, I find it very difficult to go through life um, kind of sugarcoating things or talking in code or trying to to talk in a certain way. Like uh, that just doesn't work for me. Yeah, you know, I, I just have to be myself. And if my openness and upfrontness, you know, comes off wrong, I'm, I'm okay with learning from that and apologizing about it. Um, sure. But, you know, I, I have to just have that upfront, open communication. Um, and a big part of that, you know, that kind of alludes to a little bit of what we'll talk about later is in my very first conversations with uh, clients that hire me, uh, I talk about image licensing and, and what that license allows them to do uh, with the images that they're purchasing from me. And I talk about how licensing photos is a big part of my business. Uh, and so, you know, if I shoot a photo for a designer, that photo might end up getting licensed to a cabinet company or a faucet company. Uh, and having those conversations up front really helps to set the expectations of what's to come. And it helps eliminate any, you know, kind of awkwardness or uncomfortable conversations that might have to arise later because you didn't talk about it in the beginning. Yeah, there, there is a tendency in our culture for various reasons, some of them good, maybe some of them not so good, that, you know, a lot of a lot of conversation that happens on a professional level is mm-hmm. very surface level. There's a lot of BS that, that goes into it, frankly. And I'm, I'm very much with you. I, I think that we waste a lot of time and ultimately even cause problems by not just being straightforward. We can be straightforward, communicate directly, still with a, in, in a kind manner. There's no reason that they have to be mutually exclusive, but beating around the bush doesn't really help people the majority of the time. I, I, I get mm-hmm. that there are contexts for that, but uh, I, I like your your thought process there. And I think it's important for all of us to, to at least consider that and to do a better job of that, to communicate more directly. I, I joke about how, well, halfway joke, because I'm, I'm, I guess ultimately I'm serious about the fact that a lot of communication, um, I, I wish that we were using dictionary definitions of words in communication because that would simplify things even more. We wouldn't have yeah. to like sort through the meanings of what is this person suggesting what might they think that word means in the context of this conversation? I wish we would just simplify things in general. So I think it's a great approach to com- to conversation, communication, and ultimately customer experience. Yeah, thank you. Talk to me about time. Uh, you're you're in this wonderful, wonderful place now that probably makes you want to to capitalize on time even more than you already did. You're married. You've got a daughter, and so you're you're juggling family life and then also business. Is there a principle that has enabled you to manage your time more effectively? Uh, I wouldn't say a principle. Um, and yes, uh, you know, living in Hawaii, we, my wife and I joke, we feel like there's multiple days in a day. Like, you know, it'll be in the evening. We're like, man, like we did three days worth of stuff today. Like just because we want to do so much, mm. um, you know, we want to experience so many things out here uh, and there's so much to do. But so, so not a principle per se, but my kind of practical and what works for me is actually uh, almost a little funny and archaic way of, you know, managing my time. I use the notes app on, you know, uh, the Mac or my phone. And I have a list that I call get to do. And a lot of people have a to do list and I call it a get to do list. Um, because That's cool. I want to always remember that, you know, uh, everything that is on that list, uh, I should be grateful for being able to do or mm. quote unquote having to do. Mm. Uh, and so it's just a kind of a, a daily, weekly, you know, minute by minute 
reminder that, you know, I do need to be grateful for all these opportunities and, and everything that I had going on. Um, but I literally just write out, you know, the day and the, what I have to do underneath that day. And I just keep a running list and, you know, uh, it's not a calendar form. It's not any kind of sophisticated program. It's literally just, you know, bullet points um, underneath each day. And once, uh, you know, something else gets added to my quote unquote calendar, I just type it into that list and, uh, and we're off. And so that's what helps keep me organized. Now I'm curious because I've, I've thought about that type of approach in my task and project management. Cause I, I like the simplicity of that. I'm very much a minimalist and a, kind of a simplicity freak. And so the notion of just having the simple notes app and just putting some bullet points on there or little checkbox next to them and crossing them off is appealing, but I'm involved at this point in four different companies. I day trade. I have two kids. Um, I'm going to start learning to play piano again. I've got a potential soccer season coming up. I ride motorcycles. There's so many different moving parts in my life. And so the idea that I would be able to keep up with all of that on just a simple list is it seems kind of impossible, but maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way. How do you do it? No, I don't think you're looking at it wrong. I just think different things work for different people. And, um, you know, um, there's, there was a time when I had like every little thing like written on my list, like, you know, 6am wake up. Like, it's funny. I used to get crap from my friends because I would even write, like, go to the bathroom and eat, like underneath my, my, uh, <laughs> you know, 6am, like wake up time. Like, yeah, it was that, it was that detailed, you okay. know? Um, but nowadays, you know, I just kind of keep the main, uh, tasks that I need to, to take care of. Like, you know, for instance, today I just opened it up. Uh, you know, it's like, follow up with this person through email, follow up with this person through email, send okay. an invoice to this person, send a quote to this person, call my mom about this. And then, uh, you know, uh, oftentimes I'll, I'll write, um, work out, um, at four o'clock because usually my wife and I kind of clock out at four o'clock and we head to the park and let my daughter play at the playground while we do our workout in the park. That's awesome. Um, but you know, oftentimes I don't even write that on there. So it's kind of like, uh, I guess like my, my business day or, you know, just the, the most important tasks are written on there. Mm-hmm. But no, I don't think you're looking at it wrong. I just think everything works different for every person. And, and once you find a system that works for you, then, then stick to it and, you know, the, the best system is the one that you're actually going to use, right? <laughs> that is fair. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but Andreka uh, is a friend of mine, photographer friend of mine, who's been on this podcast a number of times. And we joke quite a bit about the, f- the fact that she likes sticky notes. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, it's 2000, whatever, and you're still using sticky notes. Come on, you use it. But to your point, and, and ultimately, I, as much as I give her a hard time about it, it's it really is what works for you as long as you've got a system in place and it's reliable do you and and yeah. if, at the end of the day that's that's really what counts so uh that's yeah. cool talk to me about and, and really when we talk about time management um the the notion of outsourcing or delegation is really important part of that conversation and, and by the way i have to throw this in here uh, this podcast is sponsored by photographers edit and Photographers Edit offers custom post-production. If, if those of you wedding portrait photographers, even commercial photographers out there listening in, don't outsource your editing, um, check out photographersedit.com. But I, I, I'm, this idea of outsourcing, delegating, uh, this is something, honestly, Adam, despite the fact that I own an editing company, is it's something that I'm still working on myself, learning how to better communicate to my team in the process of delegation. Have you experimented with this process very much? What does it look like for you? Uh, not a ton. Um, I did when I when I was doing real estate photography. I outsourced my editing uh, to a, a company overseas, uh, which worked out well at the time. Okay, cool. Uh, now that I'm not doing that type of work, um, you know, I do all my editing myself now. Uh, I have recently done some outsourcing with lead generation. So what that looks like is I went on Upwork and 
uh, found somebody that, you know, had lead generation under their, their qualifications or, you know, list of uh, abilities and told them exactly what I was looking for. And so, uh, it was really helpful for the move over here to Hawaii because, yeah. you know, like I said, we, we made the move pretty quick. Um, I did zero research on potential clients out here. You know, that's a, a pretty big, scary thing to move to a place where your expenses go up and your income drops to zero. <laughs> right. Um, and you've got a family to support. So, yeah. uh, you know, like I said, I, I didn't do any research before I got here, but what I did do before I got here was, uh, get a, a virtual assistant from Upwork and said, I want interior designers, custom home builders and remodelers and residential architects. Uh, I want each of their websites, their company name, and an email address for every company that you can find on the entire island of Oahu. Wow. Uh, and so I got a list. Uh, it wasn't a huge list. It was a little bit smaller than I had hoped for, um, but it was something. Mm -hmm. And so I, I was able to populate those into uh, MailChimp campaigns. Uh, and from those first uh, couple of email blasts, um, you know, I immediately got an in-person meeting, which turned into my first photo shoot here on the island. I've since had a couple of phone call and Zoom meetings, uh, another, you know, couple of in-person meetings. Uh, and, and lots of, you know, kind of email correspondences from that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, recently, actually, just last night, I finished going through the list and I went through every single one, one by one, went to every single website to A, check, is this, um, you know, my ideal client? Is it somebody that I should, should keep on my email list or is it totally off base, you know? Because there were some that were totally off base. Like there was hospitals and schools and other photographers and mm. like graphic designers. And it's like, how did this end up on here? And now I feel like such an idiot because I actually put them on my list and emailed them three okay. or four times by yeah. now. But, um, you know, it was money well spent. It cost me 125 bucks. And, you know, my first shoot was well over a thousand dollars. Wow. Um, so obviously money well spent, but yep. now, like I said, I'm going through it to kind of refine that list and, uh, you know, make notes off of it and, and kind of dial in who I want to keep on the list, who I want to target individually and okay. kind of, you know, reach out with a personal email and stuff like that. What a what a brilliant use of this concept of delegation, though. Where did you did you just find this individual through an outsourcing site of some kind? Yeah, it was just on Upwork.com, okay. um, and you know there wasn't a ton of like research involved. It was kind of like, okay, who's cheap, who's available? Yeah, let's you know throw this at at the wall and see if it sticks, kind of thing. Um, and I had actually done the, uh, the same thing with the same person uh, in the LA area uh, just a couple months before we moved, because again, we didn't know we were moving, so. I was, you know, trying to jump up new business in, in my current area there. Um, and it worked well over there. And so I was like, well, let's just have them do the same thing over here for Wahoo. Yeah. And forgive me, you did mention Upwork earlier. And, you know, it's interesting. Upwork used to be a company called Odesk. And and I, I was on there on Odesk. And I don't know how many different people I hired through Odesk originally, but they turned into Upwork. It is It is a really interesting resource for uh, a variety of types of work. We'll link to it in the show notes for anybody curious, and we'll put that in the show notes at bookapodcast.com. And of course, you can see any of the talking points and resources that we mentioned today during the show in the show notes, which also, if, if you're using a, a decent podcast app, you'll see the show notes there as well. Um, let's talk about a business book or a self-help book that you've found most impactful in your reading. By far, the book that has had the single biggest impact on my life is Secrets of the Millionaire Mind by T. Harv Eker. Um, this was pretty much the first like kind of financial book that I read. And, and I'm so glad it was because the book is all about your mindset. And uh, for anybody listening that has, hasn't heard of it or isn't familiar with it, the book is broken into two different parts. Uh, okay. The first part is almost like a 
kind of like a self um, analysis, like a little psychology on yourself of what do you know about money right now? What do you think about money? What do you feel about money? And why do you feel that way? Everybody comes out of the womb knowing the exact same thing about money. That's nothing. And so whatever you know at this point in your life, you know because of your experiences, what you've seen, what you've experienced, and, and so on. Once you can kind of figure out what it is you know and why you know it about money, then you can go to the second part of the book and it kind of like helps you reformat uh, your mindset about money and hmm. kind of starts from scratch and starts teaching you things from scratch. And it's a little bit hokey. It's a little bit woo-woo at, at times. Um, you know, the second part is basically called like 17 different ways that rich people think differently than poor people. And obviously those are very broad terms to make examples and make points. Right. Um, but it, it helps you just to understand the type of mindset that, um, you know, rich or, or wealthy people might have. And that book just completely transformed my life. And again, it was because it came from the mindset because, you know, I, I think had I read other self-help books, other, you know, financial books or whatever, uh, I might not have been able to digest them quite so well because, yep. Uh, I wasn't starting with the right mindset. Yes. Mindset is everything. And, and, you know, I try to spend on this podcast as really as much time as possible at the end of the day talking about big ideas or principles, because we can throw out a few quick tips, but if the underlying principles that, that really have been established for the sake of our business or for our personal life, for that matter, aren't in the right place or aren't the right principles, uh, aren't healthy principles, then these other things that we do are just things that we do and they end up being in many cases just kind of band-aids uh, for a problem or a series of problems that are going to continue to come up if we don't un- address the underlying uh, principles that are driving our business or driving our personal life. And that certainly holds true when it comes to finances as well. So that's really compelling, actually. I just added it to my uh, uh, watch list and we'll, of course, link to the book in the show notes again, bocapodcast.com. And actually, for everybody listening in, if you're looking for books to read in this new year, if you go to boca, B-O-K-E-H, bookshelf.com, uh, Haley's actually put together a collection of the most popular books that have been mentioned uh, on the podcast in the last 500 episodes or so. And you can check out that resource as well. It's just bocabookshelf.com. Let's let's get into kind of our main focus for today. Adam, you've alluded to it a couple of times. We're going to talk about the importance of a licensing mindset. And I guess maybe can we just start by, or start with, I should say, a definition of this this notion of a licensing mindset. What does that mean to you? How do you break that down for photographers? Sure. For me, a licensing mindset, which is, uh, I guess, a, a term that I coined while, while creating my course, is a way of looking at and thinking about your photography work, a way that allows you to keep thinking, who else would this image be valuable to? Hmm. So what I mean by that is, you know, as a photographer, you make money from different uh, streams, right? You have your, your different clients that hire you, but you might also be able to sell those same images to other people. Other people might have a use for the content that you're creating. And so what I try to teach people is this mindset that just allows them to be on the lookout for other opportunities to create money, uh, bring in more revenue with the content that they already have. And a really good analogy is when you are buying a new car, you're about to buy a new car, or you just bought a car, and all of a sudden you start to see that same car all over the road, uh, and you just notice it more because it's been on your mind. Yeah. And so once you develop this licensing mindset, all these opportunities to make more money uh, or shoot a little bit differently or to kind of market and sell your work a little bit differently will start to kind of present themselves and jump out at you. 
Whereas before you have that mindset, you, you know, the opportunities are still there in front of you, but you just don't know how to look for them. You don't know what they look like. Uh, and so once you develop this licensing mindset, it really kind of just opens up the doors to um, new possibilities that you just haven't seen before uh, in terms of making money from your photography. Yeah. And, and I want to throw this in too, because um, some of you listening in, you might be like, well, I'm not a commercial photographer, an interior photographer. It is licensing applicable to me. And, and I think in the context of 2020 and many photographers kind of rethinking their business models and looking for additional streams of revenue, I think this is a highly relevant topic for basically anyone. Uh, and, and speaking of this licensing mindset, maybe you can break down the the main components of this licensing mindset what makes up the mindset how does a photographer begin to think that way sure uh, I'll, I'll take a quick step back though and comment on what you just said sure uh, you know you're right you don't have to be a certain type of photographer um, you know when I was a BMX photographer and licensing those kind of images I also you know like to shoot some travel stuff and was able to license a couple of travel photos uh, just because I'd posted them on my blog and somebody found them and, and had a use for them you know um, also just last year, uh, I licensed a video clip, kind of a crazy story. Um, I won't get too deep into it now unless you want to later, but I was on a plane going to Bali and our plane caught on fire and I was filming and oh, uh, wow. I was able to sell that clip to a bunch of, uh, news stations and made well over $5,000 from that video clip Wow! Um, because I knew that the clip had value because I knew how to, uh, properly license things. And because I had that mindset of, Hey, I'm creating content that somebody might want. How yeah. can I monetize it? I, I have um, to at least ask though, because I, I love to fly. Um, and yet I'm, I'm still, for whatever reason, I'm a, a nervous flyer, at least at times. I, and I grew up, my, my dad has his pilot's license. We went up flying with him. I love planes. I love flying as a concept, but there are still times where I get nervous after having that experience, were you more nervous flying? No, I, I guess I just knew it was such a freak accident yeah. that now it's almost like, well, what are the odds of it happening twice? I mean, <laughs> you know, Hopefully not high. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, are you going to be scared of a thunderstorm after the first time you got struck by lightning? It's like, man, the odds are pretty slim that it's going to happen Fair. twice. So, Fair. You know, maybe I got it out, out of my system already. No, I, and uh, yeah, props to you for being super logical about it. I'm not, my emotions, unfortunately, kind of take over sometimes, but um, <laughs> man, that's, yeah, what a crazy story, but way to take yeah. advantage of it too. So talk to us then about that mindset. What makes up, what are the kind of primary components of that mindset? Sure. Uh, so when dealing with the licensing mindset, um, kind of the first step is understanding the, the ecosystem of photography in your particular industry or niche. Um, so that kind of includes who needs your photos? Um, you know, what kind of companies are looking for images like the ones that you take? Uh, once you identify that, you know, why do they need them or how do they use the images? Um, you know, so kind of understanding the usage of these photos. And again, like from working with that brick and tile maker that I mentioned earlier, you know, I was able to see like, okay, in this particular industry, it's more than just their website and Instagram. They have an in internal and like dealer type price list that, you know, the, the end users don't see. They have trade show booth graphics. Uh, they have signs and, and kind of banners and different like point of purchase type displays that go into dealers all around the country. Uh, they've got, you know, the, the customer facing brochures and lookbooks and things like that. And, um, you know, they post photos on Pinterest, on Google photos, on their Yelp page, you know, so the list went on and on. And so I started to understand, you know, how valuable each of these images were. 
Um, and so that kind of leads me to the next point is how valuable are the images, um, which is kind of based on you know, a lot of the things that we just talked about. And then also, how do they usually acquire photos? So in this space, uh, if somebody is looking for a photo like yours or you know, if they can benefit or, or um, monetize a photo like yours, how do they acquire the images? Um, you know, what methods do they have of getting these types of photos? Um, and an example that I like to give in terms of this is uh, I'm going to use obviously my industry because it's what I'm f- most familiar with. Sure, sure. Um, but let's take uh, an example of a kitchen. Uh, if an interior designer or a builder hires me to shoot a kitchen, there's a lot of products in that kitchen. We've got the cabinets and the countertops and the flooring and the backsplash tile and the faucets, uh, even like the knobs, the, the hardware, like the pulls on the drawers and the cabinets. All of those things um, are companies that need photos to market their products. Um, and so you have to th- think, okay, well, if that company that makes the cabinet needs photos of their cabinets, how are they going to acquire photos? Uh, let's break that down. What does that look like? Okay, they are based in California. Can they rent a studio and build a space? Do they have a warehouse that they can build a space? Okay, well, when you talk about building a space, like, is it going to build, are they going to build an entire kitchen? Um, you know, how does that look? How do they make it look natural enough to, you know, uh, show to people to, to where it doesn't look fake or, or too contrived, you know? Um, think about all the time, energy, money, planning, resources that would go into building a, a space, building a set just to take pictures of these cabinets. Hmm. So that's one option. Then you've got the option of, okay, they're in California and they just sold uh, to another architect in California that's going to put them into a house in California, but it's in a different city. So, okay, well, they have to track down that, that architect and then possibly work with him to get in touch with the homeowner. Then they have to you know, get access to that house and then they have to find a photographer to go to that house. So how do they do that? They're going to you know, get on Google and Yelp and search around and, and call and email people and you know, have conversations and get bids and quotes put in and they have to vet the, the photographers and then, you know, uh, work with their rates. So, okay, they're, you know, given that whole scenario, you, again, you can imagine how much time and energy and effort and, and potentially money is going to go into getting photos of those cabinets in that instance. Or you've got another way, which is here I am in Hawaii. I've just been hired by a builder. I shot the kitchen and I saw the logo of the cabinet inside the cabinet and I emailed them, hey, I've got these two photos of cabinets. They're $400 each. Do you want to buy them? So here they are. They have photos that literally just landed in their lap. And for a couple hundred dollars with zero effort and work on their end, they can have beautiful photos of their products. So um, again, you kind of think about like which way uh, does a company get photos? How do they acquire their images? And how can you help them by providing photos in a way that's uh, more convenient, a little bit cheaper than the other options that they have? Well, it seems like just a, if we were to kind of sum up how to develop this mindset, it's really familiarization with whatever industry that it is that you're serving. Because if you're familiar with the way that this particular industry functions, you understand all the moving parts associated with it, um, then you're more effectively able to sell to those all the many needs associated with the way that they function. Are, are you, do you, do you understand the inner workings of these industries just from experience or have you kind of proactively created conversation for the sake of learning that information? How do you ultimately develop that familiarity? Yeah, really good question. Um, I guess it's just experience. So, you know, I started my career working for a BMX bike riding magazine. And at that time, you know, I would shoot events like X games and stuff 
And after the events, um, the professional riders who were there and, you know, got a gold medal or whatever, their sponsors would reach out and say, Hey, I know there was only a couple of photographers at this event. Do you have any photos of this rider that I can buy from you? You know, I want to, uh, put an ad in a magazine to say congratulations for winning the gold medal or you know I want to put a new ad in, in our upcoming catalog do you have any photos of this writer and so it kind of started way back then um, and then when I kind of switched and started doing fitness photography similar things happened where you know I would shoot photos at a CrossFit event and then afterwards the company that provided the equipment like the barbells and the bumper plates and the dumbbells and stuff reached out and like hey uh, I know you have photos from this event and we provided all the equipment can we buy photos from you of you know, these professional athletes using our equipment. Um, and then, like I said, you know, I, I sold a, a photo from my blog that I, I kind of alluded to earlier. That instance was, you know, I had some uh, photos of the Long Beach skyline, uh, you know, the city where I lived at the time. And a company reached out and said, hey, uh, we make custom motorhomes and, and like coaches or big RVs. And there's a trade show for RVs coming up in Long Beach. And we want to plaster, you know, kind of do a big wrap around our entire bus of the city of Long Beach for this trade show that's going to be in your town. Can we buy this photo from you? And so I was able to license that photo. And then when I switched to shooting the interior spaces, like I said, I was shooting for a brick and tile maker. And uh, it's funny because even though I had all that experience, it still didn't quite dawn on me how much potential this this industry had for that type of third-party licensing. Uh, And it wasn't until uh, I was editing a photo of a fireplace that I took wrapped in the bricks of, of this company that I worked for. And as I zoomed in while I was editing, I saw a logo for the fireplace company on the, the glass of the fireplace. And at that point, I was like, wait a minute, if, if this brick company can use this photo in their marketing, why couldn't the fireplace company use the same photo in their marketing? Mm. Um, so I did a little digging and reached out and, and you know, made contact and was able to actually license the photos of that fireplace company. And that was kind of like the clicking point for me of like, okay, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. You're shooting photos that one person needs. There's a real good chance that another person can use and benefit from that photo also. Yeah. Well, and like you said, when you begin to to think that way consistently, then the ideas flow a little bit more naturally. It's it's a matter of kind of getting that ball rolling, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. And I, at this point, I see it all the time. Like anywhere I go, you know, I, I'll be cool. watching a Netflix show and I'll see a faucet <laughs> from a company that I've sold to before, okay. you know, in the family's kitchen on Netflix. And I'm like, ooh, I know that company, you know, and uh, and it's even gotten to the point where it's like rubbed off my wife, you know, like I showed <laughs> pictures uh, of a house to my wife the other day that I'm going to go shoot soon. And she's like, Ooh, look at that stove. I, I know you sold to that stove company before, you know? So, uh, like I said, it's just like the car thing. Once you, you know, start to, to see those cars all over the road, you're going to see more of them. And it's the exact same thing with this licensing mindset. Once you see how uh, many people can use your photos and moreover, once you get paid a bunch for these photos, then you start to see because you start to see dollar signs everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I I guess as far as the next step is concerned, and and I'm going to speak a little bit more generally here, especially for the the wedding and portrait photographers listening in, but personally, and I shot weddings for over 10 years. um, I can't remember any time in my career as a photographer where I ever intentionally licensed individual photos the way that you're describing it. So I'm certainly naive about the, the, at least the technical elements of the process. What are top three ways, let's say, for photographers to begin looking for opportunities to license their photos? What are the avenues for doing so? Yeah, good question. So we have stock websites like Shutterstock or Getty Images and things like that. Um, And so what that looks like is uh, first of all, you have to become a contributor, uh, which is a little bit of process involved. Obviously, they don't take every photographer as a contributor. 
Uh, and then you have to... Can I, can I stop you right there, Adam? I'm, I'm curious sure. about what you just said, because it's funny, I don't know, I and mean, maybe this is just, again, my naivete, but when I look at a stock photo site, uh, or when I have in the past, it, it seems like any and everyone is uploading photos to the stock photography site. How are they actually vetting the photographers they're accepting? That's a really good question. I don't have a great answer for you. Okay. Um, I, I was a contributor to a site um, but got on board with them many years ago. Okay. And part of the reason why it looks like they take anybody and everybody too is because a lot of the stock sites are partnered together. So even though like I originally got on board with one that was called um, uh, Aurora, yeah. um, you know, eventually they partnered with Getty and, and Alme and some, some others. So you know, my same images would be on all these other websites. And then eventually, you know, Aurora got bought out by another company and they had partners with other companies. And Interesting. so now my site, my photos were on all these different websites and the more diluted it gets or the more widespread it gets, the less money you make because each website has to take their cut of it. Uh, um, and so, you know, to answer your question directly, I'm not sure how they vet them. Uh, I'm sure it's not super difficult. You know, if you're good and have decent images, uh, there's probably a way you can get them up there. Uh, but once they, once you're in the system, you know, you have to learn their particular system of, you know, the proper metadata, tagging, description, writing, um, file naming, you know, sizing restrictions or whatever, uh, and their upload process, which at, at the time that I was doing it, it was very tedious and cumbersome and um, not fun. Uh, and then at that point, you kind of have to just wait and see. And so, you know, somebody will be searching a, a website for a type of photo and, there's 2000 or more of these types of photos and they have to search through all of them and, you know, hopefully find yours. And then, uh, you know, they buy it through the website, the website takes their cut and then you get your cut. And so over the 10 years or so that I had photos, um, you know, several hundred photos on stock websites, I personally probably made about $2,000 over the course of like 10 years or so. Wow. Okay. Um, and the, honestly, um, you know, a little side tangent here, the biggest benefit for me probably was the fact that um, because I was uploading travel photos, it gave me a lot more leverage to use my trips and travels as tax write-offs. And so the money was very insignificant to me, but I was able to you know, write off a trip to Bali because I would upload Bali travel photos to a stock website that I could potentially sell. And so now it was a work trip, you know? Cool. Uh, but a again, a lot of these photos don't sell for very much. Um, sure. You know, recently I, I looked at my stock uh, back end and I actually ended up telling them to just take me off the platform because a lot of photos were selling for most photos, I should say, were selling for less than a dollar per image. Oof. Um, and at that point, I was just like, you know what? I'd rather just not sell my photos than to get 12 cents for this shot. You know? Yeah. And, you know, it was it was cool to get, you know, a check for six to three dollars direct deposited every quarter or so. Um, but it wasn't real money. You know what I mean? It was sure. very insignificant. So that's that's avenue number one. OK, kind of uh, a, almost like a like a. I don't want to say for beginners because I'm sure plenty of people make tons of money off of stock sites, but um, it, it, it is kind of the, the first option, certainly not the best option. Right. And, and like you said, there, I'm sure there's people that have um, kind of hacked the system or figured out the system and, and make it a big part of their business model. Um, for me, it wasn't enjoyable and I didn't um, you know, see the direct line of how to implement this into my business model to make uh, you know, money enough to, to justify the ROI. Um, so the second avenue would be uh, directly involved parties. Um, and so again, I'm going to speak a bit more from my experience, but I'm going to try to relate it to you know yourself, Nathan, and, and a lot of your listeners that might sure. be like wedding or portrait photographers. So in my industry, directly involved parties would be um, the designer, the builder, the architect, 
or anybody else that was directly involved in that project. So an architect might work with a builder. They might work with the, the designer. So if the architect hires me, we can bring in, you know, one of those other parties that were directly involved in, in building the project and have them share the license cost or, you know, license the image after the fact. And so just off the top of my head, hopefully I don't sound too naive and, and uneducated on this. I've never shot weddings before, but sure, just sure. off the top of my head, you know, in the wedding industry, instead of just the bride and the groom that paying for a license, maybe then, you know, the dressmaker, the jewelry company, yeah. um, the venue, the flower arrangement people, absolutely, you know, the DJ or anybody else kind of directly involved yeah. uh, with that wedding, you know, might potentially, you know, have a use for those images. Because again, you're not looking for who, who can pay me for these or who can I sell these to? You're looking for who is going to get value out of these images um, and, and understanding again what that value is and, and how those images can help their company sell more of whatever they're selling, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that's kind of number two. Uh, and then the third one, which is kind of my specialty, is third parties that are not directly involved. Yeah. Uh, and so again, you know, in my example, I shoot a kitchen for the designer, the designer is the paying client, but then I license the exact same photos um, to the cabinet company, the faucet company, the tile maker, uh, the lighting you know, fixture company, the window company, um, all these other products that are in that space. Um, and so again, you know, for weddings, um, that might be you know, other companies that weren't involved with that wedding that also do wedding related things, you know, um, which you know, they might have a lot of stock photography options, but um, there might be options there, there too. There might be possibilities there uh, if you get a little creative. And, and being that I've never shot a, a wedding, um, you know, I can't really speak to how to get creative in that respect. Um, but I'm sure a lot of your listeners that shoot weddings also shoot other things. And again, once you kind of develop the mindset, then you can kind of spin that mindset into your particular niches and sort of figure out where those opportunities lie. Um, or you might be on a plane that catches on fire and you're going to sell it to ABC <laughs> and NBC News. And just hit play on the uh, the phone video recorder. Yeah. I, I do want to mention to our listeners just a, a, a bit of a caveat, which is if, if you're looking to license your imagery to third parties that aren't your wedding clients, for example, your portrait clients, just make sure that your contract covers that. Uh, that's going to be super important. And that actually leads me to my next question. And yet again, I'll break the fourth wall here a bit, Adam. When, when I, we were talking about this question, actually, before we started recording, um, you actually mentioned that you don't use a contract. Is that right? Um, kind of. And I, I'm wincing here. I want to be open and honest about this. This is definitely a part where I tell the audience, um, do as I say, not as I do. This is the part where I say <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. Don't take legal advice from me. Fair, fair. But I'll go back to the part where I talked about creating a system that works for you. So, you know, I've been a professional photographer making a, a full-time living more than 15 years. Um, and I've never, you know, had uh, what most people would consider a contract. So I'll, I'll kind of like walk you through what my um, system looks like currently. Please, yeah. Um, so with a, a regular client of mine, a, a designer, you know, builder, architect, et cetera, um, when they talk to me, I'll send them a rate sheet that has one section that, you know, talks about the price breakdown, one section that talks about, Kind of my process and what to expect and one process or one section that uh talks in very um you know layman's terms about the licensing usage and um you know kind of what what to expect um in terms of legal issues or, or whatever like you know basically like this is what you can do with your photos this is what you can't do right okay uh, and then when they agree to hire me i send them a deposit invoice uh, and that typically has um two pages one with you know, the, the job description and the price and the, the back page is what 
I consider to be my contract, um, which again is uh, very layman's terms. Um, you know, it, it talks about what happens if the shoot's canceled. Um, you know, when I'm going to deliver the photos, what they're allowed to do with the photos in terms of licensing, yeah. uh, and what they're not allowed to do in terms of you know uh, redistributing the, the photos to other parties that might want to license them. But I don't have them sign it or anything. And then after the shoot's done, I give them a, a final invoice that kind of reiterates the um, terms about licensing, but doesn't reiterate everything else that was on the original deposit invoice. With all that said, uh, I recently bought a um, contract bundle from a photography-specific lawyer mm-hmm. called thelawtog.com. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I know uh, Rachel Brinke is really great. I, I've spoken to her. Um, and so, you know, for 2021, I wanted to up, up my game. I planned to up my game. I want to do things more official, but I'll be honest with you. You know, I got the contracts and I opened them up at Microsoft Word and I was like, oh my God, this is overwhelming. And I closed it. And then a couple of days later, I opened it up and started to try to edit thing in Microsoft Word. And I was like, oh my God, this is so stressful and closed it. Uh, and then, you know, I waited a couple of days and I opened it in InDesign and, and copied and pasted it into InDesign, which is where I create my invoices. And I started to try to like lay it out into my particular design and branding. And I was like, oh my God, this is so overwhelming and stressful. And I just closed it. And so maybe there'll be a fourth time when I, when I can actually implement it. Um, <laughs> so, um, and, and then when I license photos to, you know, the cabinet companies and things like that afterwards, essentially I send them an invoice that has two to three lines of text explaining the license and that's it. Um, so, you know, just like I like to, you know, talk to people pretty straightforward and, and honest and, and open. Um, I'm kind of the same way in my business practices. You know, if you tell me you're going to pay me for this image and this is how you're going to use it, uh, you know, I, I trust you and I take the check and cash it with a smile on my face and I move on. Uh, I'm not real big on, you know, trying to police everything and making things complicated for me and the people I work with. I hear you on that. And I guess I'm going to, I guess, similar to what you said earlier, still going to encourage anybody listening in to make sure that you at least get a, a signature because it, I, the last thing that I would want for anybody to run into, and, and it's incredible, Adam, that you've been in business for 15 years and you haven't had to run into this. It's, it's wonderful. And I hope that continues to be the case. Uh, but I also know there are gobs of horror stories out there too, where photographers don't cover themselves and run into some trouble. And so adding the signature bit to what you were just saying seems like kind of the best of both worlds. And, and certainly we'll also link to the episodes that we've done here on uh, the podcast as well regarding contracts. And um, we'll put those in the show notes, actually, at bocapodcast.com. Shout out to Haley, by the way, who uh, does that for us and um, has put together really just a massive resource, actually, for you listening to the show, take advantage of the show notes, bocapodcast.com. We've had Paige Griffith on the show at least twice now, um, who's in that same space, and uh, we'll link to those episodes. I, I guess just to, to kind of finish our conversation, though, Adam, um, I'm curious maybe if you can share a little bit about the pricing uh, when it comes to licensing, because I know this is a point of conversation that that photographers have a hard time with at times and i understand why and just you know simple pricing for packages for example they're selling packages to their wedding clients or portrait mm-hmm. clients and i think in some cases photographers kind of overcomplicate the process uh mm-hmm. and that's a conversation for another day but i'm curious how you approach pricing for licensing and maybe if you can kind of relate it too to you know you mentioned earlier wedding photographers for example working with all these other vendors i know that that yeah. some photographers myself included have have just given those images to those vendors as just kind of a a means of saying you know here's something for you i want to do something for you and hopefully we have the opportunity to work together in the future kind of switching the mindset to hey there might be an opportunity here for licensing 
I know as, as an individual, as a wedding photographer, I wouldn't know exactly how to approach the pricing for that. So what could this look like? What are the important elements of this conversation around pricing for licensing? Yeah, uh, good point. So, you know, to your point about the wedding photographer, um, I think it's just a very different industry. And, um, you know, without being in that industry, it kind of saddens me a little bit to hear that so many wedding photographers just give away their work. You know, I, I'm not sure where that stemmed from or kind of why that became the the norm in in that industry or that niche of photography. And we do see it some in my particular industry niche uh, with, you know, designers, uh, that post your photo on Instagram, for example, like we'll have the cabinet company comment like, Hey, this is a beautiful picture. Can we post it on our, our page? And the designer kind of gives it away. And, you know, sometimes the photographer doesn't understand that, you know, they're not supposed to be able to, to do that. And, and I think that comes in the education, you know, educating photographers, educating clients, because at the end of the day, the U S copyright law says that you as a photographer own the photo. And as long as your contract says that you still own the copyright and you have the, um, ability to license it to other to other parties, then you can do whatever you want with that and you can sell it to whoever you want. And so why would you then give away your work to other companies or people that are going to profit from it? You know, again, we talked about the value of these images. And, you know, if, for instance, a wedding venue is using your photo to promote their venue that people are paying thousands and thousands of dollars to have their wedding in that venue, like why, you know, obviously it has value to them. So why shouldn't you get compensated for that? Hmm. So, when it goes, uh, when it comes to pricing my images, uh, again, you know, in my particular space, you know, there's a handful of things that we we look at. Um, first of all, how valuable is it to the company, which we kind of already talked about, like how will they use it? How much reach does that company have? How much can it help them sell their products or their services? Um, how else could the company get a similar photo? You know, um, like we talked about the different ways that people are acquiring their assets. Uh, also, you can think about how much work went into the photo for you to create. Um, and then it kind of gets a little personal of how good is the photo? You know, like what is your skill level? And, you know, realistically compared to other images out there, like how good is it? Uh, and then uh, funny enough, how bad do you need the money? You know, there's times when you might be, you know, struggling a little bit more than others as a freelance photographer. Maybe it's a slow month and maybe you just really want the money a little bit more right now. So you're willing to negotiate a little bit lower price. Um, now, with all that said, in my particular business model, I do what I call going for the easy yes. Um, so when I reach out to product vendors, uh, cabinet companies, faucet manufacturers, et cetera, uh, I have kind of a set price. And this kind of goes against uh, commercial photography where you're trying to figure out how exactly how big the company is, exactly how they're going to use it, exactly how big of a reach that image is. And the reason for that is because that just complicates things. Again, I'm, I'm a simple person. I don't want to complicate things on my end or their end. But also, you have to understand that what I'm doing is reaching out to a company unsolicited. They didn't hire me to shoot that photo. Mm. They don't know that it's going to end up in their inbox that day. They didn't plan or budget for that photo. Okay. So if that's the case, if they do come to you like that bus company came to me and had a very specific reason and use for the photo, then you have a little more leverage in your negotiations. But when I'm just reaching out to a company um, and they don't have a specific need for that image, you know, then the value kind of drops a little bit. Uh, so I have a set price uh, for my images um, and I tell them straight up front in the very first email I send, I tell them what the price is. I try to upsell a little bit and say, you know, if you buy three or more, I'll drop the price a little bit. But the reason for that is that uh, it's very important when you email a company that gets a lot of emails, uh, you know, I'm talking to the, the marketing director or the creative director through these emails, right? If I'm reaching out to them unsolicited, their inbox is filled with people wanting stuff from them, asking them to do things. 
And so if you make it one extra step of they have to ask questions or I have to ask questions or, you know, they have to click a link to go see your photos or they have to download a PDF to understand your price structure. That's just adding more variables in the equation. That's adding more roadblocks between you and them saying yes. Uh, and so I like to get that easy. Yes. I make it super simple for them. Um, and that's how I kind of approach the pricing on my end. So if I can play devil's advocate a little bit, the questions that you mentioned asking earlier, how valuable is it to the company? How much work went into the, the creativity or the creating of the image? How good mm-hmm. is the photo? How much do you need the money? All of these things at the end of the day are a bit arbitrary. Is there a particular matrix that you're plugging this into uh, an algorithm of sorts that you've been able to come w- up with over time? Maybe even just simply based on how much you know you need to make a week or a month or a year. Um, to set that that specific price for your images? Yeah, really good question. So if you go to a website like Getty Images, for example, um, you can sign up for an account that'll give you like, let's say 10 downloads a month and it's X amount of dollars per month. Yeah. And you know, for the most part, it doesn't restrict you on which images will be in that 10 image package, right? So that'll give you like kind of a base idea. Or if you go to Getty Images and you try to download one photo and you put in your specific usage and yada, yada, It'll give you a price of, you know, like, let's say $4.99 for that one photo. Right. Um, but again, if you sign up for that package, that price of $4.99 is going to drop to, you know, $3.75 or something like that. So you can kind of like use that as like a little bit of a starting point. Again, if there's a very specific need, if they reach out to you directly and they're like, hey, we need this image for a billboard on a national campaign and da, 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 da. All right. Now we're talking about something different, but we're talking about like very general topics here. Right. Um, and so I, you can kind of use that, um, you know, quote unquote metric or base for pricing, but also just experience. So again, I've been doing this for close to 15 years in the BMX world. There was almost like an industry standard that wasn't standard, but it was kind of like after negotiating with dozens and dozens of companies for very similar usages and images, it always landed like right in that same general ballpark, Hmm. um, which in BMX was like 300 to $400. Okay. Uh, Once it got to the fitness world, it was a very similar ballpark. Once it got to the, um, you know, kind of home goods space, it was a very similar ballpark. And so I'll go out and say, when I reach out to companies like this, my base price is $350 for unlimited use or $200 for online only use. Okay. Uh, and then again, I try to upsell of like, if I have, you know, five photos, I'll say, you know, if you get all five of them, I'll drop it, the price by $50 per image it, for unlimited only, you know, um, if you want online only, I'm not going to give you a discount, but if you want you know, three to five or whatever um, for unlimited use, and I'll give you a bit of a discount. Um, and so again, it's just kind of from experience. And again, if my skills and talent level weren't quite so good, if the properties that I was shooting were a little bit more run of the mill and not so like high end and luxury, you know, maybe that price would come down a little bit. If they were way more luxury, if my skills were way better, maybe the price would be a little bit higher. But again, this is kind of the sweet spot that I found, you know, doing this dozens and dozens of times yeah. over years. You know, what have I found to give me the easiest yes? Like what, what has gotten the least pushback, the least negotiations? Okay. Uh, you know, if you start in a little bit too high, they might push it down to the bottom of their inbox and say, I'll get back to it later. They might, you know, ask you to negotiate a little bit. If you start a little bit too low, you'll get the, the quick and easy yes. But, you know, you're kind of undervaluing your work. Uh, and so basically the short answer is experience. And when you when you're talking about making it as easy as possible for that potential client, are you sending along with that price a link that takes them to a page where they can pay for the image and download it directly? I mean, is it that kind of simple, or what's that process look like? Yeah, good question. It, it, it could be if you already have that kind of um, system in place for your particular business. Okay, 
you know, obviously a lot of um, real estate photographers and session and, and portrait wedding photographers have those kind of, um, you know, backend like management systems in their business already. Because I kind of, you know, shoot low, low volume, um, high price point clients, uh, I don't have that type of system. I just use Dropbox. Okay. So when I send my initial email outreach that, you know, says who I am, what I'm trying to sell you and the price for these images, I include a, a low res. So, you know, 2000 pixels wide, 72 DPI um, JPEG uh, in the email attachment. Uh, so I'll attach up to probably 12 or 13 images uh, if I have that many. Uh, anything more than that, then I'll include like three or four attachments and then a Dropbox link. But yeah, I, ju- I just go ahead and attach it. And if they say, yes, I you know want to purchase this um, you know for unlimited use, then I'll go ahead and prepare the high-res file. And um, either, you know, if it's one image, I can send that through an email, no problem. But if it's multiple, then I'll you know just create a Dropbox link for them. And they can download it from Dropbox. Okay. So it seems like you've got a pretty, but it's still a pretty straightforward process. It doesn't make it yep. overly complicated. Um, yep. do you, have you ever had issues with attaching all those images to the email or the email gets kind of routed to, to spam as a result? Uh, I'm sure I have, um, uh, and, and haven't really known it okay. uh, or known about it. You know, there's, there's been one client that, that told me, um, you know, we can't get attachments in here. Just send everything through WeTransfer. Like we're not even allowed to click on Dropbox. Yeah. You go through WeTransfer. Yeah. Um, so I've had, you know, vendors tell me that, you know, certainly you'll, you'll see an email bounce every once in a while. Uh, and I've got very um, kind of systematic and methodical ways of, um, you know, keeping track of, you know, who I send emails to and, and how often I, or not how often, but, um, you know, how many times I've emailed them. So if I see an email bounce, then I can either, you know, look for another contact at that company sure. or I can, you know, at that point try without the attachments or something like that. But generally speaking, you know, if you are reaching out to an actual person, like the marketing director or something, most companies can take some, you know, a handful of email attachments. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I mean, you just alluded to this, but there are so many different moving parts to running a business like this and especially to thinking about licensing. Uh, and we've, we've kind of covered the the surface level topics, if you will, today. But I know that you, you also mentioned earlier that you've got a course around this topic. Can you share just briefly about that with our listeners as well? Sure. Uh, the course is called Learn to License Your Photos. Uh, it's available at licenseyourphotos.com. Uh, and before I forget, I'll, I'll throw out that um, listeners of this show can get a 25% discount by using the promo code BOCA at checkout. Um, so obviously you can link to that in the show notes, Absolutely. Uh, but the course is, um, more than five hours of, um, scripted, uh, content. So that's basically me talking on camera, uh, with lots of, uh, graphics and text and image overlays. Um, you know, very well-produced course. It goes through everything, um, uh, from the very beginning of, you know, kind of like we talked about here, like what is licensing, what, what is copyright law, how to register your images with the U S copyright office to have some protection, um, you know, tips on, how to communicate with your clients before, during, and after a shoot so that uh, you can do this more successfully, how to identify vendors uh, within different spaces, how to find the right contact person at vendors. We've got email templates um, that I still use to this day to send out these initial kind of pitches. And if they respond in a certain way, a follow-up email, or if they don't respond, you know, templates on how to follow up like with them after that, um, how to edit diff- a little bit differently to help, you know, uh, ensure your success invoicing the clients. Uh, I mean, it, it covers everything A to Z. Like it, it literally, I show you exactly how I do every part of uh, this photo licensing that helps me, you know, bring in a lot more money for my business every year. And then in addition to kind of the, the five hours of the course material, we have several hours of bonus content, which constantly adding to the course. These are interviews with other photographers, interviews with a lawyer, interview with um, an image tracking service. So yeah, th- lots of other content uh, so that you get other people's perspective and other kind of angles of licensing. You know, we talked to 
clients of mine on the manufacturing and on the design side uh, to get, you know, ideas and thoughts from, you know, other people that are kind of involved in this chain of events here that's taking place. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, it sounds like a lot of value add for the content and the price point as well. So we'll, we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. Again, bocapodcast.com. We'll put the, the uh, discount code in there as well, Boca. And uh, I truly, man, I, I really appreciate your, your time, Adam. You've you've brought interesting perspective and, and especially when it comes to that mindset, it really is something that I guess it can be easy with all the things we have going on in our life to, to just kind of go on autopilot sometimes as business owners, um, to kind of flip that switch and go into a more proactive looking for opportunities mode, I think is super compelling. Uh, but that along with that, these other ideas that you've shared, I really appreciate your, your time in doing so. Uh, we just remind our listeners one more time, your website and social media where they can find you. Absolutely. Uh, you can find me at adamtaylorphotos.com or on Instagram at adamtaylorphotos. And my email's on there. If you ever want to reach out, I'm very accessible. Uh, and again, the course is learn to license your photos at uh, licenseyourphotos.com. Very, very cool. All the information's in the show notes. Uh, for those of you listening in, bocapodcast.com. Thank you all for listening in, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks so much, photographers, for listening to the Boca Podcast. Will you let us know what you thought of the show by leaving a review of the podcast in the Apple Podcast app? And I'd love to hear from you personally with your thoughts about the podcast and suggestions about future topics and guests for the show. My email is Nathan at BocaPodcast.com. Make sure to visit our sponsors, PhotographersEdit.com, custom photo editing for the professional photographer, and Milu.com, that's M-I-I-L-U.com, the simplest way to create and manage timelines and shot lists for the events you're photographing.